Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah to chapter 38, two chapters tonight. And the remaining portion of what is called the great interlude, it's this section that God seemingly has given us the historical background on the children of Israel so that we can look on the truth that we see in our world and recognize that God was speaking to us uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And he's going to say some things in these two chapters that I think are so important for us in our day and time. I, I don't know how many of you caught the first presidential argument, but uh, it kind of said a lot about where we are as a country, didn't it? The, the lack of civility, the inability to simply speak to one another and listen uh, and to allow one another to express ourselves and it kind of gives you a sense of where the world is, the difficulties that we are facing together as a people, the conflict that's going on in the world. And as I was listening, I sat there and I tried to find some things to, to hope in. And what I found was my only hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's not to, meant to be too much of a commentary on either candidate. It's simply to say, uh, unless the Lord intervenes, unless God steps into our situation, uh, I think we are much like the children of Israel whom we now find trapped inside of the city walls of Jerusalem under the reign of great King Hezekiah. Uh, and they're about to be told of a coming ruler that we'll get to next time, the great king uh, Cyrus, the Persian. Uh, and it has been mankind's history that we go through these periods of times where not only is uh, the Lord seemingly taking his hand off of the things that are going on in the world, but where he actually allows what it seems like a time of difficulty or a time of trouble and that surely was the case for the people of Judah. They were a people in peril. And so would you pray with me? And we'll dig in here in chapters 38 and 39. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that no matter what we face, you are the way maker. Lord, you're the miracle worker. You are the light in the darkness. Those things that we sang about as we praised you and worshipped you. You are the one who is high above all things. There's nothing too great for you. There's nothing too hard for you. There's nothing that requires too many resources that you wouldn't have. And so we thank you, God, as you speak to us tonight, that we can rest and trust in you. And so speak to us as your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
I mentioned to you before that the book of Isaiah is not in chronological order, so we're still kind of uh, going back in time a little bit. Uh, and at the time Isaiah writes these words, the Assyrian invasion is impending, but he's writing about the great king Hezekiah, who's the ruler. Uh, and interestingly enough, though Hezekiah ruled for a very long time and he was a great king, uh, we're going to see that unless you continue to finish, unless you run across the finish line, it is possible to stumble heading towards that finish line. And Hezekiah is going to do that a little bit. We're going to see it tonight. He has no son, no biological son. And so there's a tremendous problem. And the children of Israel are, are now staring that problem in, in the face. And that problem is that there was a promised heir that would sit on David's throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, and of your house and of your kingdom, it shall be established forever before you. And your throne shall be established forever. And so of David's throne, the Jewish people representing that, specifically the tribe of Judah, they are the ones about to be wiped out. And their king, the great king Hezekiah, has no heir. And so that is the place that we pick up our story in verse 1. And in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And I want you to read what follows very carefully. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went into him and said, Thus says the Lord. So this is a direct word from the Lord. It is prophetically spoken to the great king Hezekiah. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So this is, in essence, a word from the Lord. Time's up. Ticket's punched. You're going home. Forget about it. It's, this is not a negotiable issue. When thus says the Lord is put in front of a statement, that's what God means. It's not one of those things where you go, well, you know, what about? And then Hezekiah turned his face towards a wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart. And have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now at first glance, that prayer seems to be uh, just simply an acknowledgement of the life that Hezekiah lived. And in a sense, it is. But notice what precedes it. God is saying, your time's up. You're, you're coming home. You've run the race. You run well, your days are numbered, and I'm about to bring you into your glory. The first thing that you see here is how the people respond and what happens in this time of peril. King doesn't turn in a sulking manner like Ahab does in, in 1 Kings 21. He doesn't appear that he's got any ill motivation here. 
And even some have criticized Hezekiah for weeping and praying and kind of like the prayer is selfish. I don't really think that's it at all. Hezekiah didn't ask God to spare him because he'd been such a faithful servant. I don't think that's it. That would be kind of bribery. But I think he just simply wanted to stay on because his work wasn't done. And I think this is a place that many pastors get to. They, they, they have run well. They've been in ministry a long time. They occupy a pulpit. And they stay around a little bit too long. Now, I'm not trying to call out any names right now. But I think it's important that we recognize God appoints days to us. He knows the number of our days. Scripture says that. He knows the number of the hairs on our head. He knows exactly what he wants to do. And so when God has spoken to us and said, look, this, this is it. I'm, I'm going to take you home. That is also the same thing as saying, Hezekiah, you need to really think about someone else to rule the, the nation. You need to step aside because you're going to die. That's about as strong a message as you can possibly get about your time of retirement coming. Amen? That's like, look, you're done. It's over. And no doubt, there was a burden for the people. So I think it, it's hard to, to judge Hezekiah's motivations. But we can look at what he did and see the results of how he prayed, and we will do that tonight. And so the first thing that, that I really see is that we do need to turn to the Lord in prayer. What do we do in these times? There's certainly nothing wrong with turning to the Lord in prayer. But whenever we turn to the Lord in prayer, we have to also keep in our hearts and in our minds that we need to pray according to God's will. God's plans as we know them, God's purposes. So if God has spoken to you, which he has here in Hezekiah's, in Hezekiah's life, that your time is up, Hezekiah is actually praying directly against the will of the Lord that's already been revealed. This is the same as when you read the word of God, you know what it says, and I'm still going to marry this guy who doesn't know the Lord, even though the Bible says you shall not be yoked unequally to an unbeliever. This is the same type of thing. God spoke, he made a declaration, we call that his decretive will, what he has said, this is what I want from you, this is my plan for you, these are the things I want you to do, and we go, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to get saved later. Or it's like, you, you know, I, I know God doesn't want me to, to take this job, But we take it anyway, simply because it pays more money. But it also causes you to lose your character. To forfeit your godliness on a daily basis. And you know that God doesn't want you to do it, but you do it anyway for some reason that's known only to you. And so to that end, the second thing that I see here is we have to trust what God says. We have to trust his promises. Verse 4. 
And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayers, I've seen your tears, and surely I will add to your days 15 years. Now I want you to lock that into your heads as we move forward. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not, says the Lord. All that God says is trustworthy. He doesn't make mistakes. Amen? Furthermore, God, when he speaks something, is bound by what he has spoke, and he alone would be capable of changing it for his reason. But once he spoke, it's his will. It's what he has in store for us. It's his plan. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city. Uh, and this is a sign to you from the Lord. That the Lord will do this thing as he has spoken. And behold, I will bring a shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backwards. Now for you mathematicians... Uh, if you would look at this, that would amount to about 45 minutes of time. That's, that's the rough percentage uh, of the sundial, 10 degrees backwards. And so the sun returned 10 degrees by the dial by which it had gone down. So he grants him a long day. And this request that was granted, uh, you, you, can, you can see this played out also in 2 Kings chapter 20. Uh, and so there's this picture of God saying, Here's what I want for you, but you prayed against it. You prayed against what I want for you, and I'm going to give it to you. This is what I call the be careful what you pray for passage. Be careful what you pray for. Because sometimes our persistence with the Lord is we pray for things that God doesn't want for us. He actually lets us have them. He, he allows us to go through that thing that he had previously not desired for us and told us so in his word. And yet we get to go through something that when we look back on it, man, I should have listened the first time. I should have heard the word of the Lord and done it. And so just to prove it, he says, all right, I want you to know that I'm letting this happen. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to give you an extra 45 minutes in this day just so that you know about it. Uh, and sometimes people say, well, I don't think God can do that. Can I just tell you it's never a good idea to say that you think that God can't do something. There's nothing God can't do. And sometimes he will prove to you exactly what he can do by proving to you he can't do something. So it's a good idea to never challenge God in that way. We actually have this, 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 this exact same situation played out in the book of Joshua in Joshua chapter 10. If you want to read about it, it's found there in verses 10 through 13, but it's, it's called Joshua's long day, and they're fighting this battle at Gibeon, and, and Joshua's given an extra bit of time to defeat his enemies. 
But this isn't the only place that we find these things, and people have debated whether this was true or not, or how did the world do that. You know, people come up with their fanciful things that people would fly off the world if God stopped it and actually allowed time to... We don't know how God did it. And so I'm not telling you that I, I know that there was a specific, specific way that God accomplished his feat. But what I do know is God is the creator of the universe in the first place, so whatever he wants to do, he is able to do. And whether that's change people's perception or actually stop the earth somehow and maintain gravity, I don't know how he did it. But I can tell you that throughout the history of the world, there are dozens of accounts of both long days and long nights. And interestingly enough, during this period of time, uh, in North America, those are predominantly long nights. So if you look at the world and you see where Israel is and look at the world and see where North America is, you will see if there was a long day on one side of the world, there ought to be a long night on the other side of the world. And in fact, historically, that is exactly what we have. During the dynasty uh, of, I think it was the, the dynasty of, of uh, Emperor Yao, um, there was a time when the Chinese historians recorded that there was a period of successive days uh, to where they had a, a, a long day. Uh, in Joshua's time, that same time period, we have in five First Nations peoples, Native American people here in the United States of America on the North American continent, five different groups of Native Americans uh, have a, a story of a long night as you move into Mesoamerica and the, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incans, uh, the Toltecs, all have stories within their history of long nights and several of them long days. And so this is not something that's unusual in the history of the world. How God does it, I'm not sure. There's one story that in, involves... Uh, the nation of Peru that's so well documented, it's found in eight different places. And so it does appear that these types of things have happened periodically, or at least been perceived to have happened periodically. And, and whether God did it one way versus the other way, whether he literally stopped us from spinning our 1,037 miles an hour that we normally travel, uh, for a little bit of time, I, I can't tell you. If he added gravitational pull somehow, I don't know. But I know what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if he created the heavens and the earth in the first place, if he's the one that flung the stars into space, if he is the consummate big bang, God said it was, and bang, it was, then I have no problem with him doing exactly what he says he did here. And so here's a little miracle to Hezekiah. And the reason I highlight this is for this reason. We as the people of God believe in a God who has repeatedly declared that he works miraculously. This is not unusual. And I'm shocked by the number of Christians who have to have some type of sense that they can prove that something in the Bible actually can be proven by scientific means. And while that's not a terrible goal, 
it also takes the miraculous out of the equation. And so I think it is not beneficial to always look for something scientific to explain these things. There is a, there is a book that was written back, I believe, in the 70s called Worlds in Collision um, by Emmanuel Velikovsky, and he goes into this long thing about you know, how the earth could have stopped and all these types of things. And ultimately, uh, when you break down the science as we know it now, the whole, the whole premise of the book falls apart fairly quickly. And so it actually throws shade on the truth, and the truth is that God, the God of the Bible does miracles. He heals withered hands. He raises the dead. He causes the lame to walk, the blind to speak. He goes and sends an angel of the Lord into the encampment of the Assyrians and wipes out 185,000 of them before daybreak so that when the Jewish people in Judah wake up, there's nothing but corpses surrounding the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of Zion. Leave a miraculous God in your Bible. I think it's important. God has chosen not to reveal everything about himself to us, and I think we should leave it that way. That doesn't mean that you can't and shouldn't. Uh, I personally think it's fascinating to try and figure out some of the scientific reasonings behind these things. But if you get to a dead end, when you get to that end, just add two words, but God. That's all you got to do. Because I think there's a lot of things that we take for fact that we now know are not only not true, they're not even plausible. Darwinian evolution would be one of those. The mathematical probabilities that there could be somehow some precursor chemicals that might somehow align themselves in just the proper way in open space in a vacuum and congeal together to make amino acids and proteins to form molecules to ultimately end up being cells, to somehow have cells that exist simultaneously in a single place that can extract energy from the environment and then store that energy and turn it into linear motion is nuts. The probability of that happening is so close to zero that it is mathematically impossible. And yet people run around saying, well, you know, we used to be blue-green algae. And the universe used to be the size of a basketball. Really? My answer to that is a God of miracles. I cannot explain it. I know that space is still expanding. But in some places, guess what? It's contracting. So if it's actually an explosion in a vacuum, it should only expand. Leave the God of miracles in the Bible. Because that's who he is. Hezekiah goes on to make what I think is one of the most negative declarations, a negative confession. It's not positive confession. It's a negative confession. It's like, man, I'm dead. This is the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. Now, this is not a guy you want to have dinner with, okay? I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord of the, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall observe no man, no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone. 
taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I've cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from a loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. And I've considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day and night, you make an end of me. Yikes! Now that's somebody that, you know, you, you bring this person into an office, sit them down with psychiatrists or psychologists, this dude's depressed right here. This guy's got clinical depression. He's in trouble. It's like there is nothing worth living for. I'm not going to see anybody. I'll never be around anybody. I'm going to not see the Lord in the land of the living. But in spite of all that, the Lord gave him 15 more years. And it brings us to a real interesting question. I think that question is, should Hezekiah have prayed that prayer in the first place? After having heard from the Lord already. And again, I draw your attention to this for a, for a central reason. I think there are times in almost every believer's life, I know there have been in mine, where I am almost certain of a direction the Lord wants me to go. And in some cases, I have been absolutely certain. And I've tried to talk God out of it. It's like, Lord, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. And the Lord say, no, you, that's, I'm sending you there. I want you to do this. This is exactly what, well, the well, Lord's going to be hard. And the Lord's going, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct, Jeff. But Lord, I don't like hard. I want what I want. And so I pray and I pray and I pray. It's like, you know, Lord, even if it be possible, could there be some other thing that you could, and the Lord just confirms over and over and over again, no, this is what I want for you, Jeff. I have had many of these times in my life, most of them revolving around ministry things. One of them involved coming here. Like, nope, I'm really happy right here in the mountains. I don't even like the city. And nothing you can say to me right now is going to help me uh, change my mind. Now, this happens to be the opposite situation. I was not hearing from the Lord. And so God answered that prayer and said, nope, that's where I want you to go. And he confirmed it. But in the process of doing that, I'm praying all kinds of things that aren't, you know, it's just like, Lord, what? How come? Why now? And he allowed me to have some of those prayers answered. It's like, oh, man, that's what you were getting at. I watched a church right down the street from Calvary Chapel Running Springs get started by a guy that I was assisting in ministry in growth. You see, I didn't know that part. That was the part I didn't know. And the Lord's going, no, I, I have a plan for you. This is what I want. And it's like, well, yeah. Be careful what you pray for. Because I got to sit around and watch some of those negative things happen that God was trying to spare me from. God was trying to speak and move. 
God had given his primary will, his decretive will to Hezekiah. He said, look, you're coming home. And Hezekiah said, well, I don't really want that. I, I want to see these people. I want to see this thing happen and that thing change. Basically, he's saying, the only purpose that I can see is he thinks he can change God's mind. It's not a good place to be. We need to be careful to pray specifically in God's will as best as we know it. Now, you're probably all saying, well, I sometimes don't know. That's a whole different issue. But there are times when you know. And there are some things that you might think about. You know, it's not always God's will to save your loved one. Can I tell you that? Some of you are going, I, I don't want you to say that, Pastor Jeff. I can tell you emphatically, because I've lived this particular situation dozens and dozens and dozens of times, that it is not always God's will to spare everyone and give them more days. I have prayed over children. I've prayed over infants. You would think God would spare every infant. Amen? And you sit there and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. Then you find out that God was actually trying to spare you in the moment, the agony that would follow for the next year and a half while that child slowly, agonizingly dies. It's not always God's will. And when God starts to speak and you get a general sense that the Lord's telling you maybe it's time to let go, sometimes it's time to let go. It's not always that God wants to heal every sickness. I've watched God use cancer. I've watched God use lung transplants. I've watched God use open heart surgery. Now, we pray against having to have those things, but I've watched God use them. I've watched people get jobs that I know God didn't want them to have, and I told them to their face, Please don't keep pursuing this. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And you know what followed that new job? A divorce. And their family torn apart and their extended family destroyed. So be careful that you're not trying to change God's mind. It's not always God's will that your kids get accepted to Harvard. Now, if they do, praise the Lord. And I will pray that the Lord gives you like a billion dollars so that they can afford it. But it's not always God's will. I've watched kids go off to college and walk away from their faith. And I've sat with those parents who prayed for that to happen. Where God had spoken to them, no, I'd really rather have you stay here. I'd rather have you do something else with your life. And they knew they were praying against God's will, but their child so wanted that one thing, they prayed for it anyway, and now their child isn't walking with Jesus. They would do anything to rethink that prayer and to pray something different. So be careful, because sometimes the Lord allows things in our lives 
because we have prayed them, not that you're changing his mind, but he's going to change your mind so that you can see that he was right the first time. That's exactly why Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Anybody that thinks Jesus was happy about being beaten nearly to death, shredded with a cat of nine tails of flagellum, having the skin peeled off his back, or a crown of thorns pressed onto his head and beaten on with the rod, and then nailed to a wooden cross. If you think Jesus was looking forward to that, there, there's something seriously wrong with your, with your mental faculties. No, Jesus hated the thought of being separated from his father. But he knew what his father's will was. And so he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, which is, if this cup could pass from me, Father, please let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is a perfect example of how to pray when you think you might be in conflict with the Father's will. Just submit to it. Say, God, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. But whatever you want, that's what I want. And if my will is out of line with your will, then you help my will to come in line with yours. Often we kind of pray like we're trying to somehow think we can change God's mind. He has a direct will. He has a decretive will. But he also has a permissive will. And in that sense, I think, for us to think about it, it, it's best for us to just realize that God really has two principal expressions of his will. One is exactly what he wants. If you were to be able to talk to God face to face and go, Lord, what would you like me to do right now? He would tell you exactly what that is. That's his declared or his decretive or his perfect will. Okay, Jeff, please do this, 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 and that. That's his perfect will. Very often we understand that by his word. So if there's something that we're looking into in life and there is an answer in scripture, that's why I encourage every believer, if you don't have one in your Bible, get a topical index for your Bible and just look those things up. Find out if there is something in scripture that speaks directly to the thing that you're contemplating. There are dozens of things about marriage. There's absolute instruction on almost every area, every aspect, all facets of life are contained in Scripture. You want to know if it's okay to be bitter? I can tell you the answer is no. God's declared. He has decreed in his will that it is not for us as believers in Christ to be bitter. So if you're struggling with bitterness, you are struggling against the will of God. And so the only thing left is his permissive will in that area. If you're struggling with unforgiveness, I can tell you emphatically because the Bible says that you must forgive as your Father in heaven has forgiven you, so you must forgive those who have sinned against you. You must, not you should, not you can, you must, because if you don't, you're going to be tortured. That's what Scripture says. So if you're harboring unforgiveness, I can tell you that the perfect will of God is for you to let go of that unforgiveness and walk in the forgiveness of the Lord. Now, you, don't have, you can tell God, well, I have a right to this unforgiveness, or I have a right to this bitterness, 
or I have a right to this anger, or I have a right to this jealousy. You can say, well, God, if you would just listen to me for a minute, you would understand that I have a right to these things. And God's going to say, because I created you with a free will, I'm not going to force you to do things my way. Here's what I want for you. This is my perfect will. But if you keep asking, you keep going the other way, I'm going to let you have the fruit of exactly what you're praying for. You're going to get to keep that unforgiveness. And it's going to bear terrible fruit in your life. It's going to bathe your life in pain. And and so as you think on this, it helps to broaden this whole concept of praying against what we already know God has said. You understand what I'm saying? When God's word says something, that's not for us to go, well, I don't like what it says. And so God, I want you to let me off the hook on this one. Because he might just let you off the hook temporarily so that you'll come to your senses. We start wrestling with God. I can tell you who wins. There's a story in Numbers chapter 22. Most of you know it. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, you've sat under a good, solid biblical teaching here or elsewhere. You know, there's a story of a a man named Balaam uh, and his donkey. And interesting, the the story, as as you look through it, um, Balaam prays to the Lord. The Lord says to Balaam, do not go down to the king. Don't curse these people. They're my people. Balaam sends a message back to King Barak, and he says, look, I'm sorry, king. I can't come down. The Lord's not going to let me, and I'm not going to curse these people. And finally, he ends up getting on this donkey, and he goes on this little journey And he gets along this part of the path and he's on a cliff and there's a cliff on one side and there's the angel of the Lord standing right in the middle of the road with a sword. And he's like, starts whacking the donkey. It's like, come on, get going. And so you all know what happened, right? The donkey turns around and looks at him and says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? The angel of the Lord. We're not supposed to go this way. You think it's right to beat me three times? God's already spoken. Don't do this thing. Balaam gets so angry. Now, I don't know if you like Dr. Doolittle or not, But I'm thinking if a donkey's talking to me, I'm figuring something's going on here. Okay? That's not an everyday occurrence, except on TV. Then sometimes donkeys speak a lot. But in this case, you're on a journey, you're going a direction, an angel of the Lord standing there, and you've got a talking donkey. And the donkey says, What in the world's going on here? He's insisting that God let him go around. God sends him an angel and a talking donkey. I want to go around. I'll force my will. I'm going to do whatever I want. The danger of doing that 
is God's going to let you. The rest of that story is a tragic one. You see, you don't want to force God's hand. And I believe with all my heart that's exactly what Hezekiah did. Whenever my personal preference, as it relates to my prayer life, loses focus in accordance to God's declared will, his decretive will, when I get to that place, I am in a dangerous place. This is how people justify things that are sinful. This is how people end up in bizarre situations in their life. This is exactly what happens, and sometimes... And I'm not trying to scare everyone. I'm simply saying, sometimes when God lets these things happen to us, the consequences are disastrous. They can end up being some of the worst things that you will ever experience in life. You're on the right road, and God's trying to keep you on the right road, but you try and push past God. And God sends that friend to speak into your life. He says, don't do it, man. Turn around. Don't go that way. Don't say those things. Don't go there. You're going, well, you know, I, I, I want to anyway. Then lo and behold, another friend calls you. You know, I was just thinking about you. Hey, man, what's going on? I heard you were, you were going to go out with so-and-so. You're married, dude. Don't do it. Well, you know, it's just innocent. You know, it's like, yeah, she's been a hag lately. He's been a jerk. Don't do it. Out comes the sword. There's the angel of the Lord. Happens to be your friend. Switch the two momentarily. God's saying, don't do it. Here's what the word says. You kind of squeeze on by. Then your whole life comes apart. Your whole life comes apart. Don't pray against God's will. And definitely don't act against God's will. And don't force his hand. I believe Hezekiah was supposed to die. It's pretty clear in the passage. That's why I said Mark verse 1. Word of the Lord is, your time is up. Hezekiah is like, oh, I'm going to pray against that. I don't like that answer. Two years after this time, Great King Hezekiah finally has a son named Manasseh. Manasseh was the most evil king that Judah had ever seen. He led the people in idolatry, nearly caused them to be wiped out. If Hezekiah had died when God had planned, Manasseh would have never been born. And yet the children of Israel in mass suffered because of one person's prayer against the will of God. Be careful how you pray. 
I believe it is possible through our pig-headed bullishness to get God to relent and to give us things that he does not want for us. And so that's why I pray always. People sometimes get mad at me. They'll, they'll ask me for prayer for something, but I will almost always pray, Lord, if I'm off base here, if there's something I'm not seeing, if your will is not being expressed in my prayer, if I don't have a piece of information that you need me to have, then nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we'll go, well, that's not very positive. No, it's really positive because Jesus prayed that prayer when he was about to die. So I'm good praying that prayer. I like modeling Jesus. It's pretty safe. Amen? What were some of the lessons that were learned by Hezekiah? Like a crane, verse 14, or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. You, you understand what's happening here? The life that he got after praying to have his days extended was not exactly wonderful. I'm oppressed. Undertake, for what shall I say? He's both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in bitterness of my soul. Oh, Lord, by these things men live and by these things is life of my spirit, so you restore me and make me live. And indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. Yikes. You know, we use the phrase quality of life, and I think that's what's in view here. Yeah, he got 15 extra years, but there were 15 bad years. 15 painful years. 15 awful years. God had a plan to take him home, and he, he got extra days added to his life, and they weren't good. But in the midst of all this, you can see Hezekiah still recognizing the goodness of God. I ask for this. You have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living is a living man. He shall praise you unto this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me, and therefore I will sing, on my, sing my songs with stringed instruments and become a psalmist for all the days of my life are in the house of the Lord. Hezekiah learned some new things. It did give him an appreciation for life, that's for sure. You can kind of see that in verses 9 through 12. Sometimes we take life for granted. And even though it was bad life, it was still life. So he, he did learn some good things. It wasn't all bad. And that's because God is good, amen? When we make mistakes, God is good. When we pray lame prayers, God is good. When we pray great prayers, God is good. Because God is good. All the time, amen? And all the time? Amen. So, so even when you mess up, and I think this is really key to focus in on, even when you mess up, God is still good. Don't forget that part of it. Sometimes in these more difficult passages of Scripture, we look at it, it's like, oh man, I'm doomed. No, God is still good. 
I think Hezekiah gained a new appreciation for his prayer life too. He recognized he messed up. I'm pretty sure his prayer life was changed. He may have had some misery in his life. These days may have not been what he had hoped. But I also know that he became a great prayer warrior. It's like, man, I'm not going to do that again. Learn from your lessons. One of the great beauties of the Christian life is God allows do-overs. Amen? Say amen. Because God allows do-overs. Lots of them. Endless amounts of do-overs, really. Providing they're not done with animosity towards the Lord and they're really struggles and they're not just bathing yourself in repetitive sinful behavior which could be a sign that you don't know him in the first place but the God of the Bible is a God of do-overs you can see that in the life of the children of Israel I think pretty clearly so you talk about a messed up people but what does God do he promises to redeem them still still promises to redeem them which is such a beautiful picture of how much he loves us. I love this. One of the things that's so beautiful to me about traveling to Israel is knowing that God is going to one day cause all Israel to be saved. It's a promise that he made to them. He made that true Messiah, which we're getting into the New Testament part, if you want to look at it that way, of the book of Isaiah. He made a promise to him. He says, one day... You're going to see Messiah. Hezekiah also got a new opportunity to serve the Lord, but he was going to learn and learn some humility in doing it. He wasn't going to be what he used to be. He wasn't going to have the footprint he used to have. So value every moment of every day that God gives you to serve him. Use it for his glory, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. Hezekiah died without, an, without a, an heir. Manasseh would have never been born. Manasseh reigned for 55 years. 55 bad years. That's a pretty stern consequence of a misguided prayer. Had Hezekiah died without an heir... All the bad things that you have recorded there in 2 Kings would have never happened. God would have figured out a new way to continue on David's line. And it's true that Manasseh's grandson, the great godly King Josiah, came from him. So you can kind of see the picture of how God redeems things when we mess up. He's still a Romans 8.28 God, amen? Even when we mess up, he still somehow turns it around, uses that permissive will to accomplish his, his goodness. Chapter 39, as we wrap up tonight, is very short and it's very to the point. One of the great truths that's contained in it is that God uses God's people to see who God is. God is watching us right now and the people of this world are watching us right now. They're watching to see how we're going to respond to these things that are going on in our world, what we're going to do with what God has entrusted to us, how we're going to respond. I had one of those moments today, and I would imagine there are many of you here today and tonight that have had those things, where I put on a mask 
And I instantaneously thought, I am not wearing this ever again. I'm just, nope, it's not happening. And I turned around the corner of my office, and there sits my incredible executive assistant, Jonan, who is a cancer survivor. And I thought to myself, you selfish toad. Go put your mask back on. You, you see, we all have those moments where it's like, God's spoken, this is where we are, this is what we're doing. You're like, oh, I don't like that. The world is watching. What are we going to do? How are we going to act? How are we going to respond? Are we going to be consistent? Are we going to honor his word? We honor his word here in this church. And that sometimes puts us at odds with the world. Amen? Chapter 39, we're going to read the whole thing. Eight verses. And at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters to present to King Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them, uh, showed them the house of his treasures. Now, this is also never a good thing. So he's lived. Now he's showing off the king's treasures. Silver, gold, spices, precious ointment, all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. And there was nothing in his house, nor in all of his dominion, that Hezekiah did not show them. This is Babylon, not friends. This is akin, if you have a security system, and uh, Joe's thievery service comes over, and they knock on your door, hi, we're here to steal everything you have. Uh, could you please show us the combination to your safe? And by the way, would you open it for us and just let us see what's in there? This is kind of the deal, okay? This is the enemy. But because he had been nice and showed him, you know, it's like some kindness, there's a little bit of flattery going on here. It's like, sure, come on in. And Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And so Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, said, they've, they've seen all this in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, what your fathers have accumulated to this day, shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Bad idea, Hezekiah. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Hezekiah said to, to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Man, what a settling for what is not God's best. You see what happened? He's going to give birth to Manasseh. He's going to be the most wicked king that Judah's ever known. He's going to reign a horribly long time, 55 years. And oh, by the way, Babylon is coming after the Assyrian invasion, and they're going to be taken captive, and everything that has been saved is going to be lost. The news about, you read about it in Second Chronicles 32, 
Hezekiah was famous. He was, he was a man that was well known. But the enemy's a liar. You see, if the enemy can't get in by force, he gets in by stealth. If, if the enemy can't get in by bullying you, he will get in by deceiving you. This is why we have to constantly be on guard, constantly walk in the Spirit, constantly have a prayer life that honors the fact that Satan is, in fact, a roaring lion. He is also a deceiving serpent, exactly as 1 Peter 5 says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, what Assyria could not do with weapons, Babylon just did with stealth, with lies, deceit. He went to a proud king that has now survived this horrible sickness. And so here's this king that should not actually still be on the earth, basking in his wealth, basking in his latter glory, and he wasn't even supposed to be basking at all. Isaiah reminded Hezekiah, basically, look, that isn't even your stuff. Church. Everything you have in your house, the house itself, cars in your driveway, money in the bank, doesn't actually belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. It's his. So don't show the enemy your treasures because they're not yours. They're his. Don't give away to the enemy those things which are God's, which is everything in your life. That's the picture here. Hezekiah was just a steward, the same as you are. All of us are. I am. You know, people sometimes come and they drive down the street and they look and, you know, sometimes they'll walk in, oh, can I take a tour? And they wander around the church and they're like, wow. It's like, awesome. And I'm like, yeah, it's the Lord's. Well, who's, who's it belong to? The Lord. Who's your, it's the Lord's. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the board. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's his. You do whatever he wants with it. We need to guard it, protect it, watch over it, steward it. Hezekiah's sin actually wasn't the cause of this judgment. They had mounted up year after year after year after year after year, the priests and the kings... The people themselves. Hezekiah was just a symptom. It was a symptom of a greater problem. And I think it's one of those things that we should look at in, in our own lives and say, God, am I a symptom of some greater problem? A little introspection is a good thing now and then. You just look at your life and say, Lord, is there any, any place where I'm exposing your, your goodness to the world? Because the world is watching. The world is looking. There, Satan is seeking to gain an advantage over you if he can. And instead, if Hezekiah had had a broken heart, a, a contrite heart, as David understood as he penned Psalm 51 after his own sin with Bathsheba, if Hezekiah had seen that, then there's a possibility the Bible would say some different things about their, the captivity in Babylon, even though God had spoken. Maybe it would have been shorter. I don't know. Maybe fewer people would have perished. I don't know. 
But I know this, they ended up taking the long way instead of the short way. They ended up taking the difficult road instead of the easy one. And so it's so important for us to remember that God has us on this earth for the chief reason to teach the word, preach the gospel, and to show other people what it's like to be a child of the king. And so that's our task. That was Hezekiah's task. And so chapter 39 here ends, in essence, with this Old Testament section. It kind of closes the book on that part, and we'll move on into what we call the the New Testament portion, these 27 chapters that paint for us the picture of God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and future and hope and the Messiah. Because the answer to Hezekiah's problem, the answer to Judah's problem, the answer to Israel's problem in the northern kingdom was that they needed the grace of God. That's why we're still here, is to show the world the grace of God. Show them the love of God, the kindness of God. Yes, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the praise of God, all those things. But principally, the way men are drawn to the Savior is through his loving kindness, through his goodness, and through his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the lessons of this great king. Lord, can't wait to meet him. Lord, I'm excited one day to be able to talk to King Hezekiah find out what was going on in his heart and his mind to maybe understand what it was that he was thinking when he prayed these prayers or we, we don't have all the information and Lord I want to pray for anyone that's here tonight and maybe they've been praying against your will you spoke to them you sent an angel you sent somebody to speak in their life you gave them a passage from your word and it plainly declared a path to go but they like Balaam on that donkey you're trying to get around the angel of the Lord you're trying to go some direction that is not from you I pray God that they hop down off the donkey and listen allow your word to touch their life Father we thank you for your kindness to us and your goodness to us we thank you that the end of Hezekiah's life uh, he did finish well Lord after these 15 years he did wrap up the journey in a a good way and we thank you for that grace that's visible in his life Lord help us to not make the mistakes he made help us to shorten the path Lord help us to walk on the smooth road so God we, we thank you for your word and for your power that's in us by your spirit Lord for those tonight that are hurting, they're broken, maybe they lost their job today, perhaps they're in the airline industry and they're unemployed now God we want to just simply pray please in Jesus name we cry out to you for a cure to COVID-19 we pray for those that need jobs that Lord you'd somehow free up a position for them that would be honoring to you and provide for their families we pray for those that are hurting with brokenness or they've been walking way that's not pleasing to you and they recognize that God as they turn from their wickedness they turn from that sin God would you meet them and help them to know that they're loved Lord Jesus we thank you for your forgiveness thank you for blessing us with the power
power of your spirit in us. Lord, help us to do your good pleasure. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.